Hi friends, welcome to Interviews, Voices of Our Herbal Elders. This is my opportunity to talk to some of my dearest friends, people who have not only influenced my herbal work, but also have had a major influence on the revitalization of American herbalism. Most of us began our herbal work around the same time, in the early 1970s and 80s, when herbalism was still mostly underground, a place where plants actually thrived quite well. I love hearing people tell their herbal stories of how they began their herbal work, who and what inspired them, their favorite plant and healing stories, and I felt that others would be interested in hearing them as well. In fact, I felt it was important to capture these stories before this generation of elders passed on, as we're all destined to do. guest today is David Hoffman. He has definitely been a person who has influenced and inspired me and thousands of other herbalists and plant lovers worldwide. A fellow of Britain's National Institute of Medical Herbalism, David has been a phytotherapist for 45 years. After moving to the United States in 1986, David became the director of my alma mater, the California School of Herbal Studies, and he's still a faculty member there. David is a founding member and also was founding president of the American Herbalist Guild. In 2004, he joined the team at Traditional Medicinals and became their chief formulator and later served as their principal scientist. David is the author of 14 books, which have been translated into nine languages, with another one I hear on its way. He is a hugely popular teacher at herb schools, academic institutions, and conferences actually around the world. An activist his whole life, David ran for parliament in the UK for the Green Party in 1983, and he remains active in environmental and political issues. And there's so much more to say about David. You can read David's full bio on our website and also find links to his books. Um, and just, David, I want to say thank you for joining me. I, I always look forward to our conversations, and you know, you always, you always have inspired me and just taken me off to places of new beginnings, new ways of thinking. And I know you've done that for so many others. So thank you. Thank you for being here today. Well, thank you. I, I just need to say something immediately based on, on what you said. I realized recently at no point did I move to America. You know, I've got a green card. I live here. I'm legal. Don't tell Trump. Everything's fine. But what I moved to was the herbal renaissance what i moved to was the green herbal community which is was totally lacking in europe so i moved to your family if you see what i mean and secondarily i had to get american paperwork but the moving to america was completely secondary i moving over here was a dive into real herbalism as opposed to clinical herbalism, which is what I was doing doing in England. So um, thank you for getting me over here, really. Thank you. Well, I remember actually when we first started having those conversations, which were probably through letters, and you said you were moving 
to California, I was like beside myself because I had read that first book that you published, The Holistic Herbal, which was actually revolutionary. It's kind of funny to think that that really, because there's been so many incredible books that have come out, many that you've written. But that first book really had an amazing influence um, because it tied the whole concept of Gaia and holistic healing into the field of herbalism. Um, and I don't know if you're aware of that, but I've always been curious, you know, what inspired you to write that book? That was back in 1983, for God's sake. <laughs> 84, 84. Um, there were two two core issues going on. One was, you know, my background, my, my birthing into being green, so to speak, was from an environmental perspective, not from a herbal medicine perspective. What really drew me into um, the deep embrace with Gaia was um, a recognition that we needed to be responsible for our relationship with her and her with us. Um, so I was exploring all sorts of ways to um, shed off my Englishness, my conditioned <laughs> Europeanness, all of that stuff. Um, and then not secondarily, but following that, I was really drawn to herbalism for a number of reasons. But then I realized there was no way other people would get the connection, which was obvious to me. If you're an environmentalist, deeply environmental, you're a herbalist. You yeah. might not recognize that, but it's, it's in there. It's just a given. And then the books that I was having to study at Herbal Medical School were abysmal. The herbal facts were good, but they were written by old-time herbalists who is amazing they could spell, let alone anything else. Wonderful healers, but not the best communicators. So yeah. um, I had a, a combination of really wanting to share the green that was moving me and then trying to save my new students from the crap I had to go through with the old books. So, yeah, that book has been um, it. writing the book and then seeing what effect it's had it's completely transformed my life. So I've, I've yeah. written a number of books, but there are only three books that I think are worth reading. One is that one, which was 40 years ago next year. Then Medical Herbalism, which was a medical textbook, which is 20 years ago next year. No and then my new book, which is coming out next year, um, which is putting green environmentalist-orientated herbalism in a very political context. Very, oh, well. very political. It's, it's not a how-to book. It's a, oh, God, we've messed up. This is what we have to contribute as herbalists. And there is a lot for us to contribute. Um, so that 20-year that cycle seems to really have, have been important to me. The German version is three times as big, and also the Greek version, three times as big as my book, as, as the English book. And the publishers kept saying, well, the Germans use longer words. But I've always wanted to have someone translate the German one to just see if, is it really <laughs> my book? It's just too long, but still. Yeah. 
That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, you know, it is amazing. It's a small book. It, you know, and today when we look back at it, we'd wonder the influence. It definitely had an impact. It's still one of the books I recommend always to my beginner students, you know, because of just the way it introduced concepts. Yeah, it was brilliant. And I would say the all of your books are, but you're right about that cycle. The medical herbalist one has been just such an influence, especially with practitioners, you know, people as they dive a little deeper. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I have heard that first book has been um, related to sort of as the uh, permaculture for the body, the holistic herbal. Have you ever heard that? No, but that's that's wonderful. I know. Yeah, the book wow. said it's a permaculture for the body. Like, so I thought that. I, with my sense of humor, I, I, I need to look at where the um, – Oh no, I'm thinking of anthroposophy. All the all the amendments to the soil we have to put in. Do I do I need new bath treatments? Maybe I do. No, I think it was they were talking about just how everything is so interconnected, and that's what you did so beautifully in that book. You it wasn't just a book that had remedies for illnesses, it was the interconnection. So I thought I yeah. was like, oh, oh yeah, my yeah. god, that does explain it perfectly. Well, the book that actually triggered me to think I could write a book, because um, my old English teachers thought I was illiterate, but the book that triggered <laughs> me was Hygieia um, by Janine oh. Pavati. That book yeah. really changed my worldview. I disagreed with a bunch yeah. of her herbalism, but so what? Her, her worldview and that fundamentally gay and feminist perspective um, – really transformed me. That was one of the great classics. I'm so sorry it's out of print. You know, Janine was such a power, powerful. Oh. She was like a goddess. So many people don't read that book anymore, and I agree with you. It is such a – that's Idea by Janine Pavardi yeah. Medvin, a really great one. Thank you for mentioning her books. You know, it, they're kind of – sometimes those great old classics are kind of getting forgotten, and I still believe – I love a lot of yeah. the new books that are coming out, but some of those classics that were written in the 1970s and 80s are just – powers they're powerhouses of information well not so much information just as a way of like you were saying a way of viewing the world the worldview you know that we actually need to revitalize right now i agree so fully i think we're having a little bit of a backlash here you know a little bit of that belated so we're talking across the country so it's a lot of miles but i did want to ask you um i always loved hearing the stories of those kind of aha moments when the plants just kind of grab us, you know, we, it's like they, for some people, it's like they come along and they kind of save us and not necessarily physically, but even on a spiritual and emotional level. And I'm sure yeah. you have a story like that. <laughs> I do. I do. The, the core one is just me getting one day that I was being embraced by the environment, you know, core hippie insights that we belong in the planet. But the real aha moment actually happened in 1974 or 75. There had, this is a weird story. Um, I had graduated from university as, as an ecologist, and with the, all the conditioning that you get in, in botany schools, um, I wasn't interested in herbalism because I had a degree. I knew more than these old-time herbalists, all, all the con conditioning. Then there was this um, heat wave in, in England. Uh, heat wave means it was 75 degrees for a week. You know, it, we were wimps. But 
the plants were dying, it wasn't raining, and nothing was getting on well. And I hadn't slept for about five days because of the heat. The people in my community, because, you know, good hippies, we were all in this community, I was totally pissing them off. Lack of sleep, you know, I just wasn't pleasant. And basically, they forced me to drink a cup of valerian tea. Now, not only was I a botanist, so I knew better than them, and I was really resistant to it. This was really, wasn't fresh valerian, it was old dry valerian. So the taste and the smell was terrible. And they forced me to drink it. There was about five of them standing around me, making me drink this thing. Um, and then I had the best night's sleep I remember ever having. I slept for about 18 hours and woke up renewed and refreshed and all that wonderful stuff. Um, and I got it. My, my environmentalist, I'm going to try and do this with my hands. Um, imagine a, let's get this right. Imagine a circle. As an environmentalist, I was healing part of Friends of the Earth. We were going to heal the planet. Suddenly, the planet had healed me. Oh. So it wasn't us doing it. It did me. And so, fine, suddenly everything was a cycle. It all made sense. Um, so that just not just changed my physical body, it changed my expectations of how I could be in the world because nature loved me. Even though it tasted bad, nature loved me. Um, and every, everything went from there. So it totally reinforced my doubts about the system, doubts about experts. This was yeah. a bunch of dumb hippies making me drink this tea, and it was healing. Totally transforming. Um, there was definitely an aha moment. That's profound. I love that story so much. You know, I always feel with Valerian, it's such a trickster for people. You know, it's it's kind of one of those um, amphitetic. It does either or, you know, it either it, for most people, it's really yeah. relaxing. For some people, it's not. Some people really love the taste and the smell. Most people don't. You know, it has these really... You know, I always taught people you have to religiously infuse it, never boil it. But I know lots of people who boil it. It works just fine. It's just such a trickster in how it teaches us. Have you tried to make tea or medicine out of the freshly dug up roots? Because they're delicious. Oh, yeah, it's like violet. The, the, yeah. the aroma and the taste just, as soon as it starts drying, it, it gets weird. But It tastes like like violets when you first uh, when you first dig yes. it out of the earth. Yes. It smells Tastes like violets. Very much so. Yeah. 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 David, I read something you wrote recently, and I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little more on it. Um, it said, after being a clinical phytotherapist forever, I now have finally discovered the garden and I'm actually an herbalist. Yes. <laughs> um, when it comes to the garden, I don't want to say I'm a good herbalist, but for <laughs> most of my life, I, you know, I grew up in London. Um, was a scientist, was a, you know, all of that stuff. Gardening, I always felt too big and lumpy to be in the garden. I, I wasn't really respecting the plants. So, um, you know, in gardens, I always did the physical work. I always felt resistant about actually planting anything because who did I think I was? 
Um, I just, you know, wasn't part of their family. Now I am. I I really feel it. And my relationship with the herbs has got nothing to do with what I can do with them. That's a completely separate thing. My relationship is is cellular. It it's um it is very difficult to talk about. So that people who get what I mean get what I mean. People who don't get what I mean, I'm never going to be able to communicate it. So it doesn't sound like hippie airy fairiness. Because it is, really. We're part of this miraculous, wonderful green loving thing that my human family is rapidly destroying i as part of that family and stop that destruction but because the reason i'm going to do that is because the herbs love me and it's enabled me to discover my love for them it's it's really it's very simple stuff when it comes down to it the more we think about it the more we mess it up um, but I reached a point where I can be simple about it without judging myself for not using my academic training. Do you see what I mean? Oh, God. Yeah, that just moves me, actually. I, I have tears in my eyes listening to you, David, because it, it's just, yeah, it's really the journey. You know, we sometimes think that we're saving the planet or saving plants, but it's really the herbs saving us. The plants are saving the earth, I think. Just. Yeah. By their nature of being. There's a problem that we all have over here when it comes to looking at European herbalism. It gets looked, and therefore my herbalism and my background, it gets looked at through an American perspective which is irrelevant to European herbalism. So let me try and put some context in here. There were no old real herbalists in England. I never met a real herbalist in England. They, that was all historical, um, yeah, it was historical stuff. We, we had their books, and I knew a few people who had known Mrs. Greaves, but they oh, weren't yeah. herbalists. They just yeah. had known her. So yeah. my training was um, not with a herbalist in their garden or in their medicine-making room or in their clinic. It was in um, the Hyde's Medical Clinic in Leicester, four stories of clinical rooms with, um, I think it was about 15 different herbalists, well-trained herbalists. And the whole organization had a six-month waiting list. So for me, my introduction to herbalism was sort of conveyor belt medicine, medicinal herbalism. Yeah. So it was all about tinctures and efficiency and healing and, well, sorry, removal of disease, not healing. Um, And it's very efficient at that. And I, I became good at it. Um, I, I'm a good practitioner, but yes. that doesn't make me a herbalist. It makes me a practitioner. And um, I totally understand American herbalists wanting to be good practitioners, of course. Yeah. But the more you do that, the more the herbalism slips away, the more the heart connection with with whatever we have our connection with, the more tenuous it gets. 
um, the more we get co-opted by evidence-driven medicine, which is very important. All that stuff is very important and it's irrelevant to being a herbalist. We have to be able to juggle both things together. And after 45 years of doing that, I've, been, I've reached a point where I can juggle in my own life those two things. It might look like crazy chaos from somebody observing me, but I'm having a really good time now. <laughs> Took a long yeah. time. but That's incredible and very powerful. Yeah, it makes me just think. As I said, every time I chat with you, it always takes me deeper. You know, it just helps me understand. You know, my whole background as a herbalist has always been, I, I was born and raised in California, right? Sort of landed in the middle of that whole yeah. kind of a hippie movement. And yeah. and also like how herbalism arose in, in the United States was more from a very ground up way. You know, it was not coming from a professional way so much as it was coming from just people, yeah, like trying to get back to the land. So we were gardening and organic foods, and then that included self-care and taking care of us. And we, and there was a, a, still a lot of help. We didn't need permission yeah. to do what we did. Like nobody gave <laughs> Janine permission to, to be wonderful. Nobody gave me permission yeah. to be holistic. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen too much anymore. People need affirmation before they step out of their comfort zone. And you and I, a lot of what we do when we're on the road is give people permission. It's that simple. Yeah. I, I remember once in one class, somewhere on in the Midwest, Midwest in, in the early 90s, a woman came up after we'd finished, tears in her eyes and I thought I'd really offended her and I'd done something wrong. Um, but what I had done was talk about tree hugging. I just oh. had affirmed that I'm a tree hugger. And we should all be doing stuff like that. Yeah. The first time she had heard anybody say that, and she told me the story about going out into a garden at 2 o'clock in the morning when no one was about hugging trees to ground herself and do all the stuff that you know we all do when we're hugging trees. But I was the first person who'd mentioned it. The fact that I was the first person was on one level really sad, but thank God I was there to do it because people who end up going into their gardens at 2 o'clock in the morning, um, their life is not comfortable if they can't do that at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. If that makes sense. That makes such total sense. Do you remember Grandpa Roberts at Herb School? He was a, he yeah. always took all yeah. of the students out, you know, the elder, he'd take them all out. And his main teaching was getting all the students to hug trees. Of course, with all of those younger people, it was already kind of instilled in them, right? But yeah, he was, it was just beautiful. Yeah. We'd always look up on the side of the hill and everybody'd be up there hugging the trees. Yeah. David, you know, I wanted to ask ah, you, wonderful. I know that you saw. I know he is really a wonderful, wonderful old guy for certain. You know, that was also another thing. I think in the United States, there was still elders. You know, when we were just beginning our work with plants, we still had elders that we could learn from. Mm. And we had so much love and respect for these elders. But I'm just wondering, is there a yes. teacher or a teacher who has really influenced your work? Not phytotherapeutically, not in terms of me learning the art and the craft. Um, that okay. was from 
European herbalism. Yes, and there are some named teachers, but they wouldn't mean anything over here. They they weren't our sort of teacher. They they were educators. And I have to say, I've learned um, in terms of people being guides and all of that. I've I've got most out of just being with American women herbalists. Not not in any sexual way. Not nothing to do with that, but just actually really seeing and feeling what um, the yin is about, what the feminine embrace of Gaia and Gaia and Grace embrace of the feminine is about. And that doesn't happen to men unless we open ourselves to doing being like that. And it's really difficult for men in this culture. We all know how women are oppressed by the patriarchy. I could go on for days about how men are oppressed by the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the patriarchy affirming men as the warrior. I mean, we should be ashamed of ourselves. So what I have really been educated and unfolded by is um, the smile on a beginning herbalist, a woman's herbalist face as she first makes her first tincture. That easy, open, smiling, loving embrace of it all is part of what makes me who I am. And I've learned that from you and your students, you and your family, let's put it that way. (laughs) You and your family. That's very unique to North America and maybe also New Zealand. To, in the English-speaking world. One of the other things that I think is really unique to American herbalism is the hands-onness of it. Um, yeah. When I first came over here, seeing all the varieties of medicines that were made and the varieties, I still have this memory of you trying to get me to um, henna my hair every week through a couple of <laughs> class sessions. Um in England, that didn't happen because of history and, you know, stuff. So the actual art of herbalism was really rediscovered and redeveloped by your generation of American herbalists because you had some role models to get it from. Yeah, it's so true. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I remember trying to get you to henna your hair. You're one of the few people I never could get to do it. <laughs> well, English, what can I say? You know. I know. The Queen wouldn't have liked it. <laughs> the Queen. Oh, she might have loved it, David. Oh, not on me. No. No. What do you think happened in the United States that that just started the trajectory that it did? Like what do you think it was those early gatherings or that just started American herbalism in that direction. I don't know. Other than wilderness, um, when I first touched into the west of the U.S., I was beyond blown away. You know, or I've seen it in in movies. But when I was yeah. getting lost in in Arizona and New Mexico, that again transformed me. America is one of the few places was one of the few places where wilderness left. Even that wilderness is going now. Now, it's tame wilderness. But when when yeah. I first came over here in the 80s, you could be in the wilderness. 
and herbalism gets nurtured by wildness. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the wilderness did have a huge impact on it. And also, I think it was also the timing, you know, because you like in the 1960s, what was going on astrologically, you know, was there were such huge amounts of changes that was just embracing that younger generation of which we were a part. Oh, yeah. It's almost like we didn't have a choice that, you know, uh, we, we did, but it was almost like we were being led in the direction we were back to the land, you know, wanting things to be more natural. It wasn't like choices that we made, really. It was more like a calling, you know, yeah, like, right. and right. And it was yeah. worldwide. What made American herbalism grow in in all of that stuff you were we, you were just hinting at was the unique environment here um the plants were really ready to um to dance with you all um when i was in my early herbal years in england it was it was illegal to pick a flower because it the flower was the reproductive part yeah. of the plant is there a particular instance that you recall when you saw plants were killing miracles on you or someone else? Yeah, I actually hardcore miracles, I have to say. Um, so this is me, the doctor, talking, and we should never talk about miracle cures because that's <laughs> not what it's about. Um, but we can have transformatory body responses and they're never miracles well miracles happen yes but that's not this might sound miraculous but it's not um it relates to a woman that was was in a wheelchair um with rheumatoid arthritis um and really bad really extreme situations and what i saw happen was what in America would be called a healing crisis. And that those terms weren't used in England. Um, <laughs> when the body is ready to heal, it will use anything it can that's offered, it, offered to it to heal itself with. And it's not so much the thing that heals you, it's the body using the thing to heal itself. Oh. So I am yeah, not good saying point. anything about my combination for rheumatoid arthritis, even though it's a good one and it will alleviate a bunch of the symptoms. But what happened with her was classic. Um, it was mild medicine because with rheumatoid arthritis, you've got to make sure the stomach is not going to react to anything because of the drugs they may have been given. So it wasn't a real irritating alterative mixture it's a basic mixture two days later she had an incredibly high fever which had not been going on at all was in a lot of pain and that was a weekend so i basically i did my herbal version of take two aspirins and i'll talk to you in the morning and i was freaked out you know what had i done Luckily, on the Monday or Tuesday, not only was the fever gone, she was out of the wheelchair and she was very stiff, but everything had reversed. And she was in this wonderful, improved state 
for a good few months afterwards. And th then, you know, we have more to do. But it really brought home to me that herbs can do incredible things, but they don't do them to the body. They do them with the body. So I, I have never tried to invoke a healing crisis. They're real things, but it's not for me to decide when the body wants to do that. This woman's body was ready, and it did it. And it's ready. Um, I, I was speechless for a week. I didn't. I was almost in a state where I didn't want to see patients because I didn't know what I was going to do wrong this time. If you see what I mean, um, <laughs> it, it was it was a really humbling experience and an affirmative experience. It got me very humble about me and my skills, but very positive about herbs and what they could do. Um, really recognizing that quite often, the more clinically competent I could be, the more I got in the way of the herbs being miraculous with the patient. Oh, do you mind talking about that a little bit more? That's powerful. Our Western model, or the Chinese model, or the Ayurvedic model, is a model. It, it gives you guidelines. It gives you structures. It gives you interpretive models. Um, and the body isn't like that. The soul isn't like that. The chakras aren't like that. Anything that humans can articulate coherently is not true. It's just a way of us trying to grasp the ungraspable. So the better I became as being a phytotherapist, the more I was willing to throw it all away because the healing process is not about logic. It's about the body doing what it needs to do when it's time for it to do it. The value of the phytotherapy and all the science is to make sure um, that I can actually open my therapeutic space safely. I know what drugs they're taking. I know what the side effects or what the complications might be. I study all of that, but that doesn't mean that that's all I can do. They're, they're the constraints within which I can ignore the constraints. So I would never use potentially dangerous herbs. But yeah, I think you know, you know where I'm going. I really do think the simpler the herb, the more, um, well, the more nettle-like, the more chamomile-like, the more hawthorn-like, the more powerful it is. I'm a bit concerned about how US herbalism is really diving into adaptogens. Adaptogens are totally crucial and important. The insight about their need is not let's all use ashwagandha. The insight is let's change our lifestyle so we're not as stressed. Um, using herbalism to make our place in 21st century culture more comfortable is an abuse of herbalism. We need to get rid of 21st century culture. Then we probably wouldn't be stressed. So I'm getting a bit too political there, but. That's quotable. I got to, you know, like, I just want to write down all these quotes. That one is incredibly quotable right there. <laughs> <laughs> I can agree with you totally. <laughs> wow.
Oh, you know, I heard you mentioning nettle and I just, you know, you are very quotable and I see quotes that you've said all over the place, but that one is probably your most famous quote. You know, Andy, when in doubt, it, use nettle. And the older I get, I'm, I'm, the more I agree with it. But when that, when I first said that, which was in, a, in the schoolroom at, at California school, we were in the middle of a totally knotted up discussion about how you choose what alternative is right. Should you use a rooty one, a leafy one, an irritating one? It, it got really, really mental and intense and missed the point. And I just got rid of the whole conversation by saying, when in doubt, use nettles as an alternative. The alternative part's been dropped um, by most people. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, there are situations where you don't want to use nettles, but then you wouldn't be in doubt. You would know. So um, considering some of the other things I've said in my life, that's probably the safest one to be known for. <laughs> well, even the story of how of what you said and when and how has changed, I think in part for me, because I always I always tell the story of you being at the International Herb Symposium and doing this incredible lecture on, you know, that was a chemical constituents and the counterindications and uh, using them with drugs. And then at the very end, I we you know, I make it very dramatic. You lead into the podium and you and your students, their heads are all whirling with all this information, and you go, when in doubt, use nettle. And then I realized when I heard you tell the real story of when you first said that, I have the whole story mixed up, but my story's pretty good too. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I I really want to get over to students and in, in conferences that they the knowledge and and the ever exponentially growing body of knowledge that we expect ourselves to know is only of relevance in that it can give the mind something to chew over so that our spirit and intuition and connection can point us to the plants. And the people who need to hear that are the people at the symposiums because you know, if you want to get lost in brain stuff, we can do that. can definitely do that, yeah. So while we're talking about nettle and chamomile and some of those other wonderful herbs that you mentioned, we all have special plants that we hold really close to our hearts. And so I was wondering, who are your plant allies, if you don't mind sharing? Are there any special plants that you just are always there for you? And Yes, um, nettles definitely. Hawthorn, definitely. And then I have to say, it's whatever is growing in front of me. When, when I w I've done a lot of world traveling, and you and I have done a bit together in, in Greece and so on. Um, what, I, what I got out of all of that is that I'm at home wherever the grass is growing. And it may be grass I've never seen before. Um, it may be completely new, but if, if the green is nurtured and is there, that's my ally. That's what keeps me together. When it comes to specific things for health issues, I know too much to be able to do that. So I go for what I logically know. Um, and actually, Skullcap 
so if we had if i just had skullcap hawthorn and nettles um i i i'd be fine i really would why skullcap david it works really well on my personal form of anxiety and mentalness um and all right here's here's a story um when i was first in clinical practice my community in wales for some reason we were in one of those phases where other than me there were no men in the community um not that i was in a relationship with the eight women and a variable number of children I, I could never work that out it seemed to come and go but one of the things about when you have that number of women living closely together in an intentional community menstruation all harmonizes it really does which means yeah premenstrual tension or p menstrual syndrome whatever you choose to call it that harmonizes so seven women moving into pms at the same time and the very first sign of pms is denial of pms starting as a man i know that i recognized it in them and you know <laughs> i have to keep quiet in those situations i found over a few months i tried all sorts of different herbs from the books that were hinted at as things that would help pms skullcap not very good skullcap dried skullcap from potters not not grown locally every single time with every woman in the community it would alleviate that side of of their lives not to get rid of the pms but the pms changed from crinkly electric shock weirdness to oh wow i'm having a really good time so it wow. was doing something the energy was still there but it became positive so i just got that skullcap was one of my personal doorways into recognizing the feminine and wow it's it's just been an ally like that ever since male herbalists have really got to look carefully at the way we're men in the herb world um even though we think of ourselves as being open and feminist and all of that stuff we're just as bad as any other group of men so um i put a lot of attention on how skullcap can help me in in that place and this is not chinese skullcap by the way just ordinary american and european skullcap yeah that's beautiful i know i i use skullcap and i love it you know mostly i find it's really good for anxiety of the brain you know for people whose minds just kind of keep going round and round and round it just seems to really calm that and take that. and i know that it's a very popular herb you know and among many herbalists but yeah, it's not one that I've used a lot. You know, I know I should because it's. I know I should. I should no, get to know it better. No, because no, of- no. It's it's one of my allies. So when I use it with people, it works well because it's one of my allies. There are other herbs which I hear other people get really good results with. I get reasonable results, but because they're not my allies, 
my spirit isn't in the medicine or isn't in the recommendation. Um, with nettles and skullcap and hawthorn, I'm there. That's so beautiful. So it you're really stating in that it has so much to do with the relationship between you, the herbalist, and the person who you might be suggesting the herb to. That's a really important part of that whole healing trying. Yeah, that's beautiful. So, David, I want to ask you, you know, there, we see this incredible growing interest. I think it's gone beyond the renaissance that we used to talk about, you know, just herbalism has become, you know. And so, you know, we, we had challenges when we were first starting our herb work for certain. They're very different than what herbalists are facing now. What do you see as some of the challenges for this generation of herbalists who are just rising up well, now? There are many. Um, the one that comes to mind in this moment, which may be a different one half an hour from now, is that most of, I, I was just in a meeting just before this, where we were talking about the new students at Herb School, California School, and listening to all the other faculty talk, I realized they're all thinking about future jobs, employability, um, how they fit into this or that. That was never an issue. We were learning herbalism. There were no jobs. Um, yeah. <laughs> we created them. But there was nowhere to fit in, which I thought was really good. Because if be you fit in, you're lost. But now the first thing is, where do we fit in? Not how do we fit in? Where's my job going to be? And I think that's a real problem. Um, not that there aren't jobs. The problem is there are jobs. Herbalism has been, I've got to be careful here. Herbalism is in the process of being co-opted by capitalism. Deshay, um, the Dietary Supplement Health Education Act, that changed everything back in the 90s. What Deshay did was make herbalism safe for capitalism. It was possible for the capitalists to make money. And wow. um, always a bad thing, always. I'm sorry, I'm, this is where I don't fit into America at all. Um, and I think the big challenge for all of us is how not to become another tool of oppression. Uh, and here is not, you need to buy my new book. I know, That's I what can't the wait. the new book is all about. Yeah. Um, so I don't really want to sidetrack into that now. But we, we, herbalism needs to be, sorry, not herbalism, herbalists, the individual needs to be really clear about how they view their world and what role they want in their world. Not looking at the world on what role it's going to give you, because all it's going to give you is either the right to, wait, to make money or the right to owe money. And herbalism <laughs> shouldn't be about money. The nettles growing outside in my garden, I'm not paying it. Her, the trees aren't demanding exchange of, of value. I mean, the American capitalist worldview is, is really, really unhealthy. I challenge all of that. And um, the younger herbalists, 
the, the people just starting to come in, they get that. They really do. Greta Thunberg and all those people have created the space for them to recognize it. The herbalists that I work with in their late 20s and 30s, they're really after jobs. They're, re they're really bought into what you could achieve in the culture. Um, maybe they shouldn't be students of mine. Um, the only value the culture has is it's something to focus on to break down. We need to get rid of it. We need to celebrate Gaia, celebrate the love, not fiddle about trying to see how we can get that love into the cracks between the oppression of the system. Let's be honest. Let's come out. Um, yeah. I love that. Tr hug trees, all of that stuff. It just... I think um, this conversation brings us right back to where we started, back to Gaia, you know, the holistic herbal, because that was that whole message 40 years ago. I am really excited about your new book. I want to say, though, before, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about it. I can tell as we're talking that this is going to be the main theme in it. But one of the things I've been really wanting you to do, David, and I was hoping that this would be this book. Maybe it'll be your next one in 20 years from now. But as I want you to write the book about your life, because you've had this incredibly fast, we're just touching like a tiny bit of your herbal world, but there's this entire world that you've lived in and been a part of that's so exciting. Um, I actually have written the preface of the book to try and explain to friends of mine how I got to the weird place, weird conclusions in the book, which um, to me, they're very positive and very, um, just very positive. To most people who read it, they just see it as a dark way of looking at the world. The world has become very dark. Within that, we can heal it. There is a bunch of light for us to do. but. I'm in trying to explain how I got to that place. Um, half of my family died in the concentration camps. I grew up in a house with a bomb site behind it from an 800 pound Nazi bomb. Um, it, Europe never was comfortable and it probably never will be comfortable. My worldview it was set up with the experience of they're out to get you. Whether it be Nazis, the police, the conservatives, whatever. So um, there is a very strong political streak in me, not political for political party, but political in terms of we should not be oppressed. Gaia has created this wonderfully loving, supportive, environment and yet the people with the guns are still there that's my take on politics um then my father was the beatles photographer so i grew up in rock and roll and my background is very strange so yeah i'm actually working on an autobiography you are working on your autobiography so, yeah, you are because it keeps oh. coming up in in the middle of all these thoughts, I'm actually asking myself, how on earth did you get there? 
And then I kept thinking about it. Yes, all right. I know how I got here. So the preface of the book is like the beginning of the autobiography. So there's going to be some history of me. Yeah. So, you know, there was a time when just saying, just saying that I was a hippie, people would understand. They don't get that being a hippie back then meant that we were out to change the world heal the planet, transform everything so the flowers could grow instead of yeah. being trampled on by the tanks. Um, so, you know, that's where I'm at with that one. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. So what's the name of the book and is it coming out this year? Um, it should have done, should have been out this year. It'll be out the beginning of next year. The current working title and the title is going to be down to the editors. Um, it started out being called Herbalism in the 21st Century or Herbalism for the 21st Century. And it was going to be a look at how the culture's view of herbalism has become very positive, how science has totally embraced it, as opposed to what I experienced way back when. Medicine has embraced it. The ecology of planetary crisis has got some major insights about the values of herbs. So that's still in it. And then it was going to move on to the way in which herb, herbalism and its insights are transforming the culture. But when I started working on that point, uh, that stuff, I realized there was no way I could do this morally. There is nothing to save in the culture. There are people, obviously, but the culture yep. is a very negative influence, all cultures. Um, we have to reaffirm our indigenous roots with the roots of the trees. We've got to get rid of all my Englishness, all of your Americanness, all of my Jewishness, all of your Armenianness. We've got to be green. Um, so I have to justify that in the book. So I then look at the culture as the negative thing it is, not the way it's positively embracing herbalism. The culture is killing the planet. And there's enough stuff coming from ecology and all of those sciences now to really bring home to everybody. Unless we change our ways, there won't be a human culture a hundred years from now. Doesn't matter what your politics are, what you want, what you believe, doesn't matter. It's almost too late. The cycles are such that climate change is climate collapse. And yes. I won't go into that now, but read the book. Um, <laughs> things are much, much worse than we want to think. Even yeah. People like me who think this way, they're much worse than that. So it's time to affirm our herbal radicalness, our green radicalness, and embrace the plant and do that in public. That sounds a bit silly. Do it in the road. Be in people's <laughs> faces, not as a way of transforming them, but just to show we don't need to do your crap anymore you've killed enough people you've killed enough plants profits aren't worth it 
bullets aren't worth it. Go away. Stop it. And if they don't listen to us, the planet will stop them. So yes. we needn't burn out trying to change anything. We've got to nurture ourselves creating the new, as we've done all our lives. But yeah. any time, well, for example, any time I hear of a new group of herbal things and doing really good work, and then they tell you their business plan, of how they're actually going to make money doing this, forget it. Not interested. Profit and healing don't go together. They cannot go together. They're mutually exclusive. The only way the planet will be healed is by modern technology pissing off, just going away. And either we get rid of it or Gaia will close it down one way or yeah. another. That was exquisite. Oh, thank you. And I do really look forward to this new book for certain. So listen, I it's our time is almost up, but I just wanted to ask you, like I could list, and I did, I started off by listing a few of your accomplishments. I mean, you've been, you've done so much. And I think one of the most incredible things you've done for the whole herbal community is just this incredible sense of radicalness. I, every time I speak to you, you know, always your primary interest is just in the health of the earth, you know, that's, and you tie all of your work, like this entire conversation, no matter where I steered it, you would always bring it back to what's most essential is the healing of the earth. I really appreciate that. But when you look at your work as an herbalist, like you said, it's been almost 50 years, really, that you've been a phytotherapist or plant lover. What are the things that you're most proud of? What, what is it that you feel best about? All right, this will sound really strange. One of the things that nurtures me is the fact that I'm not financially successful. <laughs> I have not sold out. At no point have I compromised on any of my core heartfelt, soul-felt beliefs. My accountant and my bank manager would like me to be very different. But, yeah, I always bring it back to the essentials because if we don't, we'll be dying sooner than we were going to. If we're going to be caring about our children and our grandchildren and the whales' children and the dolphins and the nettles, um, we've got to be real about our beliefs. Our beliefs don't start later after we bought our house if you see what i mean money yeah, I do. and profit are scarily negative which is very difficult for americans to get because everything is profit here um the fact that i've maintained that in my life um nurtures me at, at night that's beautiful um, david yeah and Actually, the other thing is that I don't think I've, I've, I haven't pissed off anybody too much. <laughs> I think that's really true. I can vouch for that. I don't think you have. Is that a good thing? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I love you, David. I'm so grateful that all those many years ago, I don't remember how we exchanged that first letter, but somehow when I knew when you were coming to this country, I just had to grab you and bring you to the herb school. And 
what a gift that was for everybody, you know, for all of us, for me personally, and then just for American herbalism. And so I really want to tell you how grateful I am for everything that you do. And, you know, I'm as proud of you for what you've just said, too. You know, your your success has been in always speaking your truth. You know, and speaking it ongoing and never giving up. So thank you for that. Yeah. And the school and other people there send their love. They, they asked me to send that to you now. Um, do we have time for a minute story about what happened I when I came the very first time? I'll do it really quickly. Um, um, the first night I was staying, this was just when I first was passing through, um, you put me up in what was called the little pod, which I'm not, not even sure is still there up the side of the hill. And I was being, I was still very English. And, you know, there are no toxic plants. There are no snakes in England. To get to the pod, um, I had to move some wood, under which was a whole family of scorpions. <laughs> to get into the pod, I had to step over something where I knew there was a snake underneath and the door didn't close. So welcome to Herb School. It completely got me out of my English safety. Of course, nothing bad ever happened to me at Herb School, but just the idea of all these scorpions. And yeah, all right, we were going to be friends. That was it. This was my home. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you, David. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so proud and glad to know that you're still there teaching, you know, still part of that whole wonderful school. You know, I've just have such great memories of those years there at the herb school. So yeah, I love you dearly. Thank you so much. Today.